welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Today we're talking about one of literature's favourite characters, the underdog. What is our fascination with the downtrodden character? Why do writers enjoy exploring things from their perspective? Is there a part of us that identifies with them? Is it because it makes it all the sweeter when things work out for them? Malcolm Gladwell starts us off by giving some food for thought in this short piece from his Penguin Live event on David and Goliath. I, uh, so I thought I would, I would talk about one of the chapters from my new book, David and Goliath, and it's, it's a chapter about a conflict that almost all of you live through, which is the trouble in, troubles in Northern Ireland. And in that chapter, I tell the story of an incident that happened in one summer weekend in 1970, and uh, when the British Army imposed a curfew on a neighborhood, a Catholic neighborhood in West Belfast called the Lower Falls. And for that entire weekend, British soldiers roamed the streets and they forbade anyone from leaving their houses under for fear of being shot. No one could go and get food, they couldn't go and get milk. And they searched every house from top to bottom. And in the end, the curfew was broken by a group of several thousand women who marched down the hill from the Catholic neighborhoods above the Lower Falls. And they were pushing prams full with milk and bread for the families of that neighborhood. And they, were linked, they linked arms and they sang, we shall overcome. And they got closer and closer to the soldiers with machine guns manning the barricades until it was too much and the soldiers turned and fled. And the women flooded the neighborhood and liberated it from the British Army. And if you talk to people who are students of the troubles in Northern Ireland, they will tell you that that march on the falls was a pivotal moment in the history of of that long war. It was the moment that really galvanized support for the IRA. Um, It was one of the reasons that a summer of unrest turned into 30 years of unrest. Now, when I wrote about that, I didn't mean, uh, I wasn't trying to settle the question of of who was right and who was wrong in Northern Ireland. That's obviously a topic well beyond my own expertise. Um, uh, It would take a much braver person than me to wade wade into that. Nor, Nor was I trying to make sense of the whole conflict, which is impossibly complex. But I just wanted to answer a very specific question, which was, why did those women march? What caused a group of people who had no obvious advantages or weapons to march down the hill and confront a group of soldiers armed with, with, with guns, right? And why do people do that? Why do they choose to take on much larger foes? Malcolm Gladwell talking at a Penguin Live event. We've got some historical underdogs coming up, but first here's Phil Earle, author of The Bubble Wrap Boy, talking about what it is that attracts him to these characters. Underdogs appear as central characters in all your books. What is it about them that attracts you to write about them? Um, I'm not sure it was ever a really conscious decision to write about underdogs. 
uh, I think it probably uh, stems back to the books that I enjoyed uh, reading myself. I was a lousy reader as a kid, and uh, and actually my interest in children's fiction didn't start until I was in my mid-twenties, but I realised the books that I was really warm into when I started reading these books all seemed to be sort of chock full of these characters who, at the start of their journeys, you thought that they would amount to, uh, to nothing. Uh, and thinking about it sort of retrospectively, you know, thinking about the books I loved with underdogs in them, you know, books like Flat Stanley or Skellig by David Almond, um, you know, I was starting to think about what, what is it about underdogs that maybe younger readers or young adult readers might like. And I think perhaps it, it comes to that thing of when you're a teenager, when, you, when you're a young adult and you're going through all these changes, you know, physical and, and hormonal changes, it's that idea of a teenager, you, you don't feel like you ever fit in. You don't ever feel like... Um, you're, you're someone who's going to amount to anything. You can be a bit, you know, blooming maudlin as a teenager, and sometimes, anyway, and certainly I was. It's just that thing of, you know, I think they really identify with those characters, that idea of taking a character that you think is going to amount to nothing in their lives. They can recognise themselves in that. And so going along with that character on a journey is um, is all the more entertaining, and, 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 it's, uh, and it's engrossing for them, I guess. That's certainly what attracts me to underdogs. So in your latest book, The Bubble Wrap Boy, we meet Charlie Han, um, who is a teenager himself and is a classic example of an underdog. Where did the inspiration for him stem from? Uh, he came from a couple of places, I think. Uh, f- from my own experiences, for starters, uh, I am and I've always been, uh, like Charlie, something of a short arse. And, uh, and when I was a kid, I used to play a lot of sport and it was always rolled out in front of me, you know, this idea of uh, this saying, uh, good things come in small packages. And it always used to really wind me up. I so desperately wanted to be tall uh, and never have been. And, uh, and so that saying always kind of uh, stuck with me, really. And, and this idea that, that Charlie is this kid who's 14, but, you know, he's nowhere near five foot tall. He's kind of four and a half foot and, and he's bullied a lot as a result. That, it's, it seemed like a, a quite an endearing trait, but also the sort of trait that would make his life quite miserable as a kid. And the other thing was, uh, another inspiration for Charlie was coming from Hull which is a magnificent city, uh, but growing up in there in the 70s and 80s, it, it, was a very, it wasn't culturally diverse at all. It was a very white, very beige uh, sort of landscape to grow up in. By the age of 12, I knew maybe one or two families who were, who were Asian, uh, but there were very few black people, very few people of colour. And, and it really stuck with me, that idea, that idea of being 12, 13 and feeling like you don't fit in in any way as, as a teenager. But what if you are literally the only kid that looks different? What if you are the only kid who has a different coloured skin? And, uh, and, and Charlie came to me, this idea of a, of a mixed-race boy who has a, a Chinese dad and an English mum. And Charlie feels like he fits every single racial stereotype there is in that his dad runs a Chinese chippy. And it's got the worst title, the worst name of any chippy in town, a special fried nice. <laughs> and he has to live up above the chippy. And it just feels like it's another thing, along with the, uh, along with the lack of height that he has, that makes him different. And I love that idea of taking this, you know, figuratively diminutive character and making him really rise up, making him, by the time of the end of the story, that instead of being four and a half feet tall, that he feels ten and a half feet tall. That was the challenge for me with with, with Charlie and his journey. So do you think an underdog always has to be a likeable character at the start of the story? Or is there more fun in tackling a character with more initially dubious motives? Oh, I think it can be great fun to take a character who's uh, perhaps a little bit shadowy at the start or or that you might think... uh, uh, you know, I don't particularly like them. Uh, when I wrote my first two books, well, actually all th- three of my first three books, Saving Daisy, Being Billy and, and, and Heroic, they all take characters that you start at the start, they behave in a certain way that that you don't particularly like. Uh, you know, Billy and Daisy were, were characters who, who grew up in care, grew up in care homes. 
And uh, when you first meet them, you know, they're pretty reprehensible in their behaviour. You know, they, they, they smoke, they drink, they, they smash up cars, they joyride stuff, they vandalise stuff, they're angry. And, uh, and the reason I made them like that at the start is that when you first meet those young people, that's often the way that they present themselves, that's the way their behaviour is. And it's not until you spend time with them, it's not until you, you, you look at their lives and you dig away at the background of their lives that you start to behave why they behave like that. Um, it's that thing, idea of, in your life, if all you know is anger and abuse and violence, then you feel like it's the normal way to behave. And there was something brilliant for me in writing those books, because I worked with those kids in care homes, and I loved that idea of... You know, yes, people wrote them off, but they had more spirit and more heart and more determination than a lot of kids I've met who've had much more normal upbringings. I love that idea of taking those really shadowy, dark corners of society that people don't want to venture into and shining the torch into the corner uh, because it's those kids actually that really need celebrating. And for me, the joy of writing about those kids was, was, uh, was making the reader change their minds about them as the story developed. So how much do you drill down into the nitty-gritty of your characters' lives? Do you do preparation on your characters before you start writing? Uh, I've realised quite sort of quickly over the course of the four books that I'm a terrible planner, that planning, uh, although it works brilliantly for a lot of writers, for me, it, it often gets in the way. I had great aspirations when I started writing to, to plan meticulously and I bought huge A1 sheets of paper which I was going to map out everything that went on in the story. But what I found after three weeks is that I was still sat there at my desk uh, with this blank piece of paper in front of me. So I tend to write a synopsis, which is a page or two. I save it to my computer and then generally I never look at it again. The joy of writing for me is that idea of, of, of going on a journey myself. And of, of, you know, obviously, ultimately, you want to take your reader on this journey, but, but I want to go on it too when I'm writing it for the first time. So I don't tend to plan. Although with characters, I often do hot seat them. Uh, I come from a, a drama background. I studied drama at university, and, and it taught me a lot, actually, in terms of when you're rehearsing a play, you often hot seat characters, ask the actor questions in character that they answer from that character's viewpoint. And by doing so, you put flesh on that character's burns. And that's been a really useful exercise for me with a lot of my main and actually peripheral characters as well, asking them what their favourite song is or their happiest memory or what their ambition is in life. Because by knowing those answers myself, it allows me to write more fully about them. So one final question. Who do you think is the greatest underdog of all time? Oh, it's really hard to, uh, to to pick out one or two. Um the book that left a massive mark on me that, that, that started me on this road to even dreaming about being a writer was Holes by Lewis Sacker, which I think is possibly one of the most perfect books uh, written, regardless of whether it's written for children or for adults. You know, it's 300 pages long, yet it covers 300 years of history. And it takes this great underdog called Stanley Yelnats, who comes from a long line of losers, a long line of, of, of people that actually were thought to be cursed. Every Stanley Yelnats born into the new generation was seen as having this curse. And you see that in Stanley, you know, he's sent to this this juvenile penitentiary for nicking or getting framed for nicking a pair of sneakers. And once he gets there, every day in the baking hot sun, he has to dig a five foot by five foot hole. And the guy that runs the uh, the penitentiary there is, you know, he's an absolute psycho, as is the, the, the other warden. And it's like everything is stacked up against him. Yet what you see over those 300 pages is this brilliant rise, this trajectory that just sees him start in the gutter, but end up at the, you know, up in the stars, quite literally. You know, it's, it's a... It's a fantastic, fantastic book, and he really is a big, uh, it's, it's, it's a great example of what an underdog is and why readers love him. And the other one is S.E. Hinton's book, The Outsiders, because those boys in that book, uh, Pony Boy, uh, Darry, Dallas Winston, Johnny, you know, they've got nothing in life. They start off, you know, with literally no roof over their heads, no qualifications, no money, no prospects. Their parents are either drunk or dead or long since run off. 
Yet what they've got is this unbreakable bond of brotherhood, this spirit that says, I would walk over broken glass to keep you safe. And, and I love that. You know, it's not like by the end of the story, they've all gone on to these amazing lives. Um, but they've got each other and they hold each other together. And at the start of the book, you never possibly think that they could manage to do that. And it's that underdog spirit that, that really, it brings me back to that book every year. I reread it pretty much every year because it reminds me really what, what great, concise storytelling really is. Phil Earle talking to Carolyn Cusa about the joys of writing an underdog. Now, you might not think it to know him now, but Zlatan Ibrahimovic came from very humble beginnings and often found himself on the outside when he was a youngster. Here he is reading from his biography, I Am Zlatan, about what it was like growing up as an immigrant in Sweden. In Rosengard, we had different council estate neighbourhoods, and no estate was worse than any other. Well, the one we called the Gypsy Estate was looked down upon. It wasn't as if all the Albanians or Turks stayed together in one spot, though. It was your estate that counted, not the country your parents had come from. You stuck with your estate, and the neighbourhood where mum lived was called Turnrosen, which means Briar Rose. There were swings, a playground, a fagpole, and a football pitch where we played every day. Sometimes I didn't get to join in. I was too small. Then I'd blow up in an instant. I hated being left out. I hated losing. Even so, winning wasn't the most important thing. The most important things were the nice moves. There was a lot of, hey, wow, check that out. You were supposed to impress the lads with tricks and moves, and you had to practice and practice until you were the best at them. Often, mothers would shout from the windows, it's late, dinner's ready, time to come in. In a minute, we'd say, and carry on playing. And it could get late and start raining, and all hell could break loose, but we just carried on playing. We were completely inexhaustible, and the pitch was small. You had to be quick with your head and your feet, especially with me being little and puny and easy to tackle, and I learned wicked new stuff all the time. I had to, otherwise I didn't get any wows, Nobody would get me going. Often I'd sleep with my football and think of the tricks I was going to do the next day. It was like a film that was rolling constantly. My first club was called MBI, Malma Ball and Sporting Association. I was just six years old when I started. We played on a gravel pitch behind some green shacks and I would ride to training sessions on stolen bikes and probably wasn't all that well behaved. The coaches sent me home a couple of times and I would shout and swear back at them. I constantly heard, pass the balls, Latan. That annoyed me, and I felt like a fish out of water. At MBI, there were immigrant kids as well as Swedes, and many of the parents would grumble about my tricks from the estate. I told them to go to hell and change clubs many times before I ended up at the FBK Balkan Club. That was something else. A reading from I Am Zlatan, which is out in paperback and ebook now. You're listening to The Penguin Podcast on the theme of The Underdog. Next, we catch up with Matthew Frank, author of the crime debut If I Should Die, about his character Detective Stark and how detectives often find themselves on the outside. By profession, the detective is an underdog. Whether police or private eye, he, she begins from a position of ignorance each time. A mystery to unravel, a villain to outwit, a killer to catch. By nature, many are hampered further. If this one stereotype a detective character usually fits, it's not fitting in. Whether it's the hard-drinking, hard-hitting, hard-thinking, hard-headed maverick, the embittered loner, the genius psychopath, 
the ball breaker, the washed up washout, the broken soul or the meddling old lady, each bring their baggage to bear as much as their brains. In my book, If I Should Die, the police constable, Joseph Stark, fails to fit in a number of ways. He's only 25, a trainee investigator, just starting out in CID in a new city and a world of experience from his peers. He's tough and intelligent, but obstinate and reserved. And he's a killer. Not for pleasure or gain, but for queen and country. As well as a policeman, he's a territorial army soldier, or was. Injured at the end of his third combat tour, he finds himself unfit for frontline military duty or service as a beat copper, both his careers in tatters, damaged in body and soul. And then his old superintendent suggests CID, and a new chapter opens. The book begins with Stark's first day as a police detective, starting a new job in a new town as a trainee investigator in the London borough of Greenwich, intent on putting injury and grief behind him. But the shadows of his past cannot be so easily outrun. So how did I come up with Stark, and why give him this military past? Whether or not it feels that way to the majority of us safe at home, wars rage around us constantly, never far from the news, and yet often too far from our minds. I grew interested in the increasing role of the Territorial Army and other reservists in modern warfare. People who take time out of their safe day jobs and lives to serve in harm's way. Whilst there is evidence their broader age range and life experience augments their capabilities, there is also evidence they are more prone to suffering afterwards, in part because they don't have the family of comrades that comes with life on or around a military base as part of the standing army. Post-traumatic stress disorder has become a familiar phrase. How the men and women affected reintegrate, or don't, into their lives back home, the support they are offered, the cracks they fall through, are our joint responsibility. It doesn't help that war veterans are particularly prone to denying PTSD symptoms, even to themselves. By training and inclination, they are self-reliant and unlikely to admit need. It is estimated that on average, a veteran will suffer PTSD for 13 years before seeking help. This side of Stark's character sprang from my interest in this, in the nature of service and the covenant it evokes between those that do and those that are served. His choice to don both blue and green uniforms reflects this sense of duty within him, and both place him outside much of life looking in. The overlap between these two facets of his life allows me to test his character in the round, his moral compass, his physical capabilities, his thinking, hopes and fears. In the fine tradition of detectives, Stark is a reluctant hero, struggling with what it means to place duty before desire or character before flaw. Already worn down to breaking by experience, he must draw his own line in the sand and hold fast or fall trying. An underdog he might be, but he's still got some bite left. Matthew Frank talking about his character Detective Stark and his book If I Should Die is out in paperback now. As a writer who focuses on the 16th century, Liz Fremantle is no stranger to the underdog. In her latest book, Sisters of Treason, Mary Tudor clings fearfully to the English throne. Seeing the threat posed by her cousin, Lady Jane Grey, the Queen orders her execution, 
But what of Lady Jane's young sisters, Catherine and Mary? Cursed with royal blood, they must endure the perils of a Tudor court, closely observed by its paranoid queen. Liz told us about the struggles her female characters have to go through. There were lots of underdogs in the 16th century. Um, I suppose you could say that all women were underdogs in that, in that period, as they were subject to the rule of men and, and required to be obedient, meek and silent. But one, one who really stands out for me is Lady Mary Grey. She was the youngest sister of the tragic Lady Jane, who was executed aged 17. Um, so she could have been described as something of an underdog too. But Lady Mary was described by a contemporary ambassador as small, crook-backed and very ugly. So that's not really a good start. It's thought by some historians that, that she was born with the congenital scoliosis uh, of her ancestor, Richard III, or the king in the car park, as he's, he's become known these days. And there's more than one reference in, in historical document to her, to her small stature, suggesting that she was, apart from having this, this very severe spinal distortion, that she was of a very, very small stature. It would seem that Lady Mary then was a woman with significant disabilities, uh, an archetypal underdog, you could say, and yet one who inhabited the highest echelons of the court. In, in early modern Europe, the medieval belief still held sway that physical flaws equated to sin. That's demonstrated effectively in Shakespeare's uh, Richard III, who he, he describes as a, a lump of foul deformity. Um, so that gives us a picture of, of how disability was regarded in the period. But Mary wasn't hidden away uh, as a sort of kind of shameful secret. On the contrary, she was educated alongside her sisters to a very high level. She knew Greek, she, she knew Latin, she, she had a sophisticated education um, and was, was a scholar. Uh, she spent many years at court a place where, where dwarfs held a kind of a special status as royal playthings. Um, so so she, she sort of fell between this, the, the, this idea of being a, a woman of Tudor blood and a sort of a, an, an oddity in the court. And her, her Tudor blood with, was something of a blessing and a curse. It gave her status, but put her and her sisters at the heart of a, a truly dangerous power struggle over the throne. Um, and as the daughter and sister of executed traitors, her father was executed alongside her sister, uh, she was required to live at court under the watchful eye of her cousin, Elizabeth I, for fear that someone would uh, raise some kind of plot and put her at the heart of it. Um, and for Mary it seemed that there was no possible route out of an existent lived, lived out in this kind of limbo at court. She didn't have the right attributes for marriage. Marriage was really the only option for aristocratic women, and to fulfil such a role meant, obviously, the bearing of children. And with this in mind, poor disabled Mary can hardly have be, been thought a good prospect as a potential mother. But the most remarkable thing about Mary Grey, which truly demonstrates her extraordinary character is that she refused to be bound by the expectations of her situation. 
she defiantly took matters into her own hand, making a break for personal freedom and happiness. It was a huge personal risk and led to great difficulties. But she, of the three Grey sisters, was the one who was eventually able to to survive and to live her own life in a kind of relative freedom. So she's a for me she's a she's a great heroine. Um it's hard to think of a modern day equivalent to someone like her because the situation for women has changed so much. Our our culture is is so different now. And although women are still still often um, promised to honour and obey in the marriage uh, ceremony, it's not really taken particularly seriously. I don't think I know any women who who would quite seriously promise to obey their husband. <laughs> I hope not anyway. Although, you know, there are still pockets of culture in our country and largely in other parts of the world where women are expected to to play second fiddle uh, but that's that's another discussion and and I think so I think gender is less of a challenge now but disability is still a huge challenge in our contemporary culture um, partly I suppose because society has evolved to favour the norm and and those that differ struggle to find their place and so I would say a contemporary equivalent of someone like Mary Gray would be the Paralympian swimming champion, Ellie Simmons. She has achondroplasia dwarfism, a condition that, that might have pushed her to the margins of society. And yet there she is on billboards all over the country next to David Beckham as a, as a sporting role model. Um, I have enormous admiration for women like Ellie because, because the hurdles they negotiate to achieve their dreams are so much greater than they are for the able-bodied. And despite this, she holds 13 world records, has won four Paralympic gold medals. And I've never heard her in an interview, or if you look at her website, there's nothing that talks about the difficulties she's had to overcome. She just wants to be treated on an even playing field. And and I think that's, that's a, a wonderful thing and completely admirable. So she, like Mary, she's refused to be an underdog. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. Liz Fremantle on her forthcoming book, Sisters of Treason. From treason to crimes of an even more sinister nature with The Sun, the brand new thriller from number one best-selling crime author Joe Nesbo. It follows Sonny, a strange and charismatic prisoner who has been locked away since he was a teenager. He listens to the confessions of other inmates and absolves them of their sins. But then one prisoner's confession changes everything. He knows something about Sonny's disgraced father, and Sonny needs to break out of prison to make those responsible pay for their crimes. In this clip, the prison chaplain visits Sonny in his cell. The chaplain entered. He could smell incense, or something that reminded him of incense like drugs being cooked. Hello, Sonny. The young man on the bed didn't look up, but he nodded slowly. Pierre Volan took it to mean that his presence had been registered, acknowledged, approved. He sat down on the chair and experienced a slight discomfort when he felt the warmth from the previous occupant. He placed the Bible he had brought with him on the bed next to the boy. I put flowers on your parents' grave today, he said. I know you haven't asked me to, but 
Père Volan tried to catch the boy's eye. He had two sons himself. Both were grown up and had left the Volan family home, as Volan himself had. The difference was that his sons were always welcomed back. In court, a witness for the defense, a teacher, had testified that Sonny had been a star pupil, a talented wrestler, popular, always helpful. Indeed, the boy had even expressed a desire to become a police officer, like his father. But ever since his father had been found dead next to a suicide note in which he confessed to corruption, Sonny hadn't been seen at school. The chaplain tried to imagine the shame of the fifteen-year-old boy, tried to imagine his own son's shame if they ever found out what their father had done. He straightened his dog collar again. Thank you, Sonny said. Bear thought how strangely young Sonny seemed, because he must be close to thirty by now. Yes, Sonny had served twelve years, and he was eighteen when he was sent down. Perhaps it was the drugs that had preserved him, preventing him from aging so that only his hair and beard grew while his innocent baby eyes continued to gaze at the world in wonder. A wicked world. God knows it was evil. Per Volan had been a prison chaplain for over forty years and seen the world grow more and more sinful. Evil spread like cancer. It made healthy cells sick, poisoned them with its vampire bite, and recruited them to do its work of corruption. And once bitten, no one ever escaped. No one. How are you, Sonny? Did you enjoy being out on day release? Did you get to see the sea? No reply. Père Volan cleared his throat. The prison officer said you got to see the sea. You might have read in the papers that a woman was found murdered the next day, not far from where you were. She was found in bed in her own home. Her head had been... Well, uh, all the details are in here. He tapped his finger on the Bible. The officer has already filed a report saying you ran away while you were at the sea and that he found you by the road one hour later, that you refused to account for your whereabouts. It's important that you don't say anything that contradicts his statement. Do you understand? As usual, you'll say as little as possible. All right, Sonny? An extract from The Sun by Joe Nesbo. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes for future podcast episodes and head to SoundCloud for other author readings and audiobook extracts. And you can find that at www.soundcloud.com forward slash penguin hyphen books. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, that's thepenguinpodcast.blogs.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.